Well done. Namaste and good evening to those who are connected online tonight, at least night time at Thai time zone. It's the first time we're going to do a satsang in this way. And somehow we are catching up with all the technological benefits of the day. Maybe even uh, being forced by the current world crisis, which entails so much isolation. I hope that in a certain way this is a new beginning. This is, uh, will allow us in the future to connect much more easily through this channel. I have decided to continue with a series of satsangs. I have been going on for more than two seasons now, actually it's the third season, where I am going on with the commentaries to the Gospel of Luke. It's a very long Gospel, and uh, we are going very slowly, and those of you who have followed previous satsangs on this theme, uh, you know that what we are trying to do here is to analyze, to explain, to understand, to absorb the teachings of Jesus, the actions of Jesus from the standpoint of yoga, understanding it from the standpoint of chakras, energies, laws of the universe, principle of resonance, and other such fundamental matters. So, saying this, let's go directly to continue. In the last paragraph which I had commented, Jesus was in one of his tough moods, in one of his tough modes also, because he gave the big six woes. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to be considered judgmental. Oh, how I do you judge people? Everybody is one with God, everybody is wonderful, everybody is divine. Uh, Jesus was a great teacher, and uh, while those statements may be true from the standpoint of Kashmiri Shaikhs and other high-level metaphysics, in daily life, as I say in the Kashmiri Shaikhs workshop itself, when you hurt your finger with a hammer, it still hurts. So all those uh, fantastic theories that we are all one and we are all God, they are valid at a certain level of consciousness and at the level of consciousness where people are when Jesus talks to them, this, the reality is completely different. So Jesus considers that some people should be ashamed for their lives, they should be ashamed for their behavior, they should be ashamed for their actions and he considers that some people are going to have severe spiritual and karmic repercussions because of their wrong actions. And to warn them, to 
maybe find that one of those people can change their behavior in the 11th hour and decide to live their life in a different way, Jesus is not afraid to scold them and he does this scolding with the famous woes. He gives three woes to the Pharisees. As you know, the very word Pharisee, when you call somebody colloquially and you say Walter is a Pharisee, that means these are people who pretend to be holy or spiritual, but they are faking it. They don't walk the talk. So to the Pharisees, he is giving three woes about the fact that they are hypocrites, and then he gives another three woes to the so-called experts of the law, to the learned people, to the scribes, as sometimes they are called, because although they accumulated knowledge and they even made a lot of this Jewish old knowledge secret, transforming it into Kabbalistic stuff, which was very esoteric and inaccessible except for people chosen especially, nevertheless, they were failing to attain the divine which showed that something was essentially wrong in their lives. And Jesus was giving them woes, like reasons to be ashamed of their actions, and the last of the woes, the sixth, the third for the experts of the law, he was concluding by saying, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. This statement contains a lot of collateral to it, because even Jesus, who presents things like, Hey, Everything is natural. You just love God. You surrender. Everything. And he gives great statements like, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is. Nevertheless, Jesus acknowledges freely that there are keys to knowledge. That there is an esoteric knowledge and that there are keys to knowledge and he acknowledges that these experts in the law, the scribes, the, the scholars of the Jewish law, they had some of the keys to the knowledge. It's beautiful here because although Jesus is so much a sort of a bhakta, he is so much bhakti, nevertheless, Jesus acknowledges that there is a jnana, that there is a knowledge which allows you to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Anybody who has started yoga in Agama as an example of an esoteric path of spiritual evolution knows very clearly that there exists an esoteric knowledge, that there are methods which help you. Try to think if it were even about the elementary revelation, 
which is not so elementary after all, about the chakras, to find the divine, to search for the divine with the help of the knowledge of the chakras, with the help of the energy moving through the chakras. Everybody who did yoga for two, three months or more, they find it natural. They all the time say, yeah, I did Samudhyana Banda and I supplied my energy to Sahasrara or to Ajna Chakra. And it's like everybody understands between the lines that that's the way to go to a higher state of consciousness and to a higher level of existence. But for people at the time of Jesus, for example, for people who lived in Europe in the 18th century, just to give an example out of the top of my head, this was not clear at all. This was completely, completely not known or uh, visible in any way. That's why there are keys to knowledge. There exists key knowledge which allows you to perform your spiritual work better and better and better. This is a very vast idea because it shows that knowledge plays a part. Love and devotion plays a part. Aspiration, the longing for the Absolute plays a part. But if you are just having those and you have no knowledge, then you are trying the very, very arduous task. Your love will find the way. Your aspiration will find the way. But it is very possible that the process will take a long, long time. And it is possible that there will be a lot of trials of knowledge. Remember the Buddha who is somehow complementary to some of the teachings of Jesus. Buddha starts with the knowledge. Buddha notices that there exists suffering. It's the first noble truth that there is suffering and it would be completely absurd to say that oh, everything is wonderful, everything is good as it is, there is nothing that I have to do. That's complete nonsense. Buddha tells us there is suffering. Look around. Your life and the lives of everybody around is full of pain and suffering. So the first noble truth is that you have to accept that there is suffering. And then Buddha explains to us that the cause of suffering is ignorance. Therefore, the lack of knowledge, especially the lack of that key knowledge. And that's why, remember that knowledge has a part to play in the destruction of suffering. And therefore, Jesus says, have a good heart, love God, have aspiration, yearn to perfection, surrender, and if you have the key to knowledge, then things are going to go ten times faster, ten times easier. To have the knowledge 
is in a certain way to have the grace of God. To have the knowledge is in a certain way to have a good karma. Have you noticed that there have been spiritual practitioners in the last 3,000 years of the world's spiritual history and some of them had a direct access to spirituality and a relatively easy, straightforward path and that some of them have had a very difficult path with a lot of challenge, with a lot of pain, with a lot of effort, with a lot of suffering, and so on. Spiritual practitioners are all of them climbing the same mountain, but some of them are climbing the mountain on an easy and pleasant path, and some of them are climbing the mountain on a very painful and difficult path. And the difference, like who chooses what, is that most people cannot choose. They just take what is given to them. And thus, some people are given by the Divine Grace an easy path to God, a path to God which may even contain pleasure in it, like the tantric path. And some people are given a path to God which is full of asceticism, full of austerity, full of tapasya, full of rules and limitations. And thus, this is very relevant because we climb the same mountain, but we don't climb the same mountain in the same way. For example, people who are on the last leg of climbing to the top of the mountain, they still can be on different slopes of that mountain. Because those people in their previous lives, they have passed certain spiritual tests, but they have not yet passed other spiritual tests. And each one of them has their own special dharma. Each one of them has their own unique combination of the spiritual tests that they have not passed. It's exactly like in a university. You say that you have to pass 40 exams in a curriculum of five years, of five years, and when you are just before graduation, everybody still has got five exams to pass. But those five exams are completely different exams from one to another. And then, for example, the people who will have to prove their detachment from money and material things, they will have a lifetime in which they are going to be poor, deprived, challenged, and they have to just surrender and let go. While other people, they don't have to pass the test in this life because already they passed it in a previous life. And now they have a test if, for example, they are afraid to go to God and if they can defeat their fear. And some people are saying, even if I have to lose my life going to God, I will give my life like the people who died on my mountain dog and who gave their life in the case 
in the cause of a spirituality, in the cause of God. Why didn't everybody who become Christian become a martyr? Because not all of them had to pass that test. Some had already passed that test in previous lives, and now their dealing with the mountain was something else. And thus, please remember, if you have a good karma, if you pass a lot of spiritual tests, suddenly you can have the keys to knowledge. And suddenly you can have a spirituality which is accelerated, extraordinary. But this, you have to earn it. You have to deserve it. Agama is a very esoteric school from this standpoint. And those of you who have spent some time in Agama, you know that the knowledge which is given in a place like this is golden is unique, is many people have gone around in the world trying to find the same knowledge and they hardly found any place where you could get this clarity, this precision, this accurate information, this technology in which you can focus on the divine matters. This is a matter of good Karma. Thus, Jesus implies here, he says, yes, there are keys to knowledge. And what is happening in spirituality is that some people, when they get access to the keys of knowledge, to the great keys and smaller keys, as they were called in the Hermetic tradition, when they get access to the secrets, they want to keep them for themselves. They want to use them as a monopoly. They want to be opportunistic and they want to speculate. They want, if they got an advantage, they want to use that advantage in a selfish way, in an egoistic way. That's what the um, experts in the law, the scribes, that's what they were doing. They had the good karma to receive some very esoteric knowledge, such as maybe they had the knowledge about the tree of life, the knowledge about the numbers, numerology, the knowledge about the sacred power of the letters of the alphabet and the connection with mantra shakti, the knowledge about other such fundamental things and then they could use it. But it's not only enough to use it, it's also very important to not misuse it. And look what Jesus complains to them in the last paragraph. He says, you have taken away the key to knowledge, you yourselves have not entered into immortality, in nirvana, and you have hindered those who are entering. Why did they not enter. They did not enter because they were selfish. They were egoistic. And as many keys to knowledge as you may have, if you have no love for God, if you have no detachment, if you have no 
diminishing of your ego, you will not enter. All those things are like lodestones that hang by your neck and they will keep you prisoner to your condition of ignorance. That is why uh, Jesus says you received the keys to knowledge. You could have accelerated your spiritual evolution more than the average person, but you didn't do it because meanwhile you kept your ego and you kept your attachments and you kept all these inferior resonances in your being. But on the other hand, because you said, oh, we know the secrets of the universe, then other people who would have been pure at the heart, who would have been sincere, they would come to you and they would say, can we also have some keys to help us in our evolution? And they would say, nah, now you are not worthy. No, you do not deserve such things. You do not qualify for this kind of knowledge. At least Jesus says it would have been logical from a spiritual standpoint to try for yourself. And if after 20 years you see that you didn't manage to do anything, at least give it to others. Maybe they can do something with it. Like acknowledge your problems, acknowledge your inferiority. No, at least be humble if you cannot do more than that. But no, the funny thing was that these people took the knowledge, they did not succeed in climbing the mountain, but they were not open in at least allowing others and simply telling them, look, I didn't manage to climb this mountain of spirituality, but maybe you can do what I have not done out of selfishness, out of form of egoism. For example, in the Chinese tradition, very often in the later centuries, in the last 2000 years and more, the Chinese did the very big mistake of keeping Taoism and some of the Buddhist Mahayana teachings as heirlooms of their family. Like egoistically, this is a very secret knowledge of our family. This is the wrong attitude. It's completely wrong. Look at Jesus. He didn't give things to his family. Look at Ramakrishna. He didn't give things to his family. Look at Milarepa. Exception made with his sister, he did not give things especially to people from his family. Spirituality is not a family business. Spirituality is not some sort of family or clan property. Spirituality has to be openly given to the people who ask for it and who have clear perspectives of getting success. Of course, the Guru evaluates if people could be successful or not. In India, in Tibet, there have been a lot of criteria which different schools and Gurus have had about these things. But nevertheless, in the case of the experts of the law, 
from Judaism, Jesus says you have botched it completely. You took this knowledge and then why on earth didn't you use it for yourself? You failed. But when you failed, you haven't been generous and spiritual enough to give it to others who were qualified in a way or another and who might not have failed. This is a wonderful way of looking upon the spiritual knowledge and remember even Jesus who only between the lines describes secrets of the universe and secret rules and principles of connecting with the divine consciousness, even Jesus agrees implicitly that there exist keys to knowledge. Otherwise, he would have said, a woe to you, you experts of the law. You imagined that you found some crazy keys of knowledge, keys to knowledge, and now you discover, like a bunch of imbeciles that you are, that there are no keys to knowledge, and uh, therefore, you know, you believed that you could cheat, but you found out that you cannot, and all that. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus acknowledges freely that there are keys of knowledge and that some people hold those keys to knowledge. It's very important. It's very important. So, of course, this paragraph ends by saying that when Jesus left from there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to beseech him with questions waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is a very unfortunate reaction, and we see it in so many ways. People who do not succeed in some spiritual parts of yoga, they start attacking their yoga teacher, and they start attacking their yoga school, because they themselves have been put in the situation of the experts of the law. They haven't been given the keys to knowledge, and when they were confronted with the fact that, hey, you know, you, had, you still have not succeeded, then the funny thing is that they turn against it. Normally, you'd expect that one like Jesus comes to you and to him and to her and says, Woe to you, you have done something wrong. You could put your head down to the ground and say, Jesus, tell me how to mend it. Tell me how to fix it. Tell me how to save my soul. Yes, you may be right, so what shall I do? But the funny thing is that none of those people who are scolded did not come and say, I would like to correct my life. They started hating him because he told them the truth to the face. Is this always happening? No, not always. These people were very selfish, very bad quality people. That's why at least one of them did not stand up and start crying and saying, Master, you are right. My life is a shame. My life is a misery. Please take me among your followers. Teach me. Help me. Let me mend. Let me fix what can be fixed. What shall I do? 
Maybe some did, but not in this particular scene, not in this particular event. And thus, the reaction is exactly what you see always in spirituality. When the people cannot eat grapes, it's like in the fable of La Fontaine, when they say that the grapes are sour. There are so many people criticizing yoga, criticizing Tantra, criticizing Agama in particular, but the bitter truth of it is that for those people the grapes are sour. They could not taste the delight of it, they did not have the patience, they did not have the humbleness, they did not ask for further guidance, and eventually at some point when they reached the break point, instead of playing it spiritually, they started playing it selfishly and ugly. Therefore, they wanted to lose him, to destroy him, and of course the way they did, it's funny, to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he may say. These people were intellectuals, hair splitters. They always tried to catch Jesus like he will say something which will be profoundly wrong. And of course, eventually, they did. When Jesus gets to be judged before the High Council, before the Sanhedrin, then there is a theological thing which had not been said clearly before him. The person of God as manifested in its Shiva, pure consciousness aspect, had not been called until that time the Son of God. The Son of God. Like God is one and doesn't have a son. If God has a son, then there is a big God and a small God. Then there is God and the splinter of God. Then there are parts, aspects of God. We can't have that. Jesus presents himself as the Son of God. And then the high priest, as a hypocrite that he is, because he was not worthy to tie the shoelaces on Jesus. He was a piece of garbage, that man. But as a hypocrite that he was, he rips off his clothes and he says, Are you the Son of God? And when Jesus said, You have said, I am. Then he goes into a fake hysteria, just out of hypocrisy, trying to put Jesus down, like, listen to what this blasphemer said. The God is one. There cannot be a son of God. And the shepherd or the carpenter from Nazareth, on top of everything, not some aristocratic person or something, da 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 no, this is the reaction. They always try to catch him. You know, like if Jesus is not 100% accurate theologically. But the funny thing is that theology can never be 100% accurate because some ideas and some letters, some words written in a book cannot describe the infinite potential of the cosmic consciousness. The mind cannot encompass or embrace 
the infinite consciousness or God. And that's why when people have theologies and they say God has said, God has decreed, this is okay and this is not okay. This is so general, so general and it can have so many exceptions and there are so many particular cases which have not been described and a book to be able to describe the whole situations would have to be as thick as the universe. It's not possible. And as such, therefore, here they try to catch the living God by some dead theology, by some books. And of course, Jesus will always be one step ahead of them. Always be one step ahead of them. Because these people are trying to find the rules in their dusty books. And Jesus is right there, alive and living it out. Being it. Being exactly what he says he is. That's why uh, living spirituality has so many challenges in this way. And then the story continues. After he gave this woes and he made himself very unpopular with two of the main sects of religious Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, then the story continues in paragraph 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Try to think that 2,000 years ago, speaking to 5,000 people was a real stunt. First of all, because there were no megaphones, not even those port voices like a cone which they had in the 19th century, those mechanical devices. Jesus didn't have one of those. Nobody had one of those in those days. So to speak to 5,000 people when there can be wind, rustling of the leaves in the trees, waves of the ocean or of the sea, other sounds coming from animals or nature, and you have to cover them with your voice, and that voice has to be heard by thousands of people, even if you are standing up on a boulder or on a high position, still thousands, I don't know if you have a concept of how a gathering of 3,000 people, 4,000 people, 5,000, 6,000 people would look like how big it is and then your voice without loudspeakers and microphones and this can hardly go behind your back so all that gathering will have to be more or less in front of you which makes it even bigger even more dense because it can occupy only a certain sector in the audible part of your voice and thus Jesus was not always heard well. 
There were people who were coming just because they heard that miracles were happening and people were healed by incurable diseases and they didn't really hear every word and they didn't go into uh, smart questions. So it was a very big, it was like a fair, it was like a countryside fair where thousands of different people with very different levels of interest and consciousness were coming to see this weird and controversial new prophet, which was called Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, he even had some buffer. He could speak in a low voice to the people just around him, while the other people were waiting for some big public speech. And so Jesus first is telling something to his disciples. And he's under the impression of what has happened before. And then he says to his disciples, so this is more inner talk, this is inner circle talk. He says, dear friends, apostles, disciples, be on your guard against the east of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He uses a simile from daily life. To make bread, you need yeast. And the yeast is what makes the bread really work. But then he says, when the Pharisees, the first of the two, those two religious groups, the ones who are hypocrite, hypocrites and false, when the Pharisees are giving you their bread, the ingredient which makes that bread be is actually hypocrisy. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he basically, he warns his disciples, do not fall under those people that have big words, big theories, they are telling you, oh, we know, we do, blah, 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 and so on. And they are characterized by hypocrisy. There is a lot of hypocrisy there. He warns them. Some people would say, Swamiji, why do you sometimes say that some people are teaching bad quality yoga, which is not yoga anymore, it's just a stupid gymnastics, and it has no spiritual value. Because Jesus obliges us to expose every time when there is hypocrisy, when there is falseness, that is the spiritual directive which is given. And therefore, Jesus is warning people, as every guru has the duty of warning people about some bad directions in spirituality. So he says, he to tell them why, like people think that hypocrisy works, but Jesus tells them one thing, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. There is nothing hidden that will not be made known. At the time of Jesus, there could have been 
many hidden things. But today, after 2,000 years, we see many of those hidden things. The Jewish priests from those days, they could have said so many smart things, such as better for one man to die than for a whole nation to disappear, blah, 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 all that politically correct stuff which they probably said. And in those days, you could fall for those arguments. Today, after 2,000 years, we know how history has happened, we know how much those people were worth, we know what were the spiritual qualities of all the people involved in the process, we know where the spiritual victory resided, and therefore we know. Now, there were many hidden things, but Jesus says there is nothing concealed which will not be disclosed. There are still in the modern history of humanity many things which are concealed. Many things which are concealed. Who is running the world in the last 200 years of modern history of humanity? Which are the forces which are at play in all this? And we can argue. People say that sounds like conspiracy theories and this and that. In a thousand and two hundred years, it will be so crystal clear. Everybody will look back and will say that people in the year 2020 were still under this collective hypnosis and illusion that that was true and that was true and this should be done and that should be done. That's valid includingly in terms of science, medical science, politics, military, finance, and a lot of other fields of knowledge. That's why Jesus says it's just a matter of time. It's the magic power of Kali which will open all the doors. There is no truth which will not be known eventually. Thus, uh, Jesus says hypocrisy can fool some people for a while, but it cannot go forever and with everybody. So he says do not stay at all into this hypocrisy because there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or there is nothing hidden that will not be made now. You should trust in this powerful statement of Jesus. It's true. It may not happen during your lifetime. It might not happen during our lifetimes. But that doesn't make the truth less important. That doesn't make the hypocrisy less shameful. Still, in the mind of God, at the level of consciousness of the Kingdom of Heaven, the truth always shows up, the truth always triumphs, and things will be known as they should be known. In this way, he said, he continues with similes, with examples, by telling them, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. 
And what you have whispered in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed from the roofs. That is because there comes a moment of revelation. Of course, Jesus eventually makes allusion to the fact that there are moments in history when the history is changing. Like in the moment where Duryodhana and his 100 brothers from Mahabharata, they were fighting against Krishna and the five Pandavas, they could claim the bad guys, the many bad guys, they could claim that they were right. Duryodhana even says, he says, I have been a fair king, I loved my wife, I did this, I spread justice. He has a very good impression about himself. And yet Krishna, who is God, an avatar, Krishna has a completely different opinion. Krishna says, from the standpoint of God, you are not good enough and you have to disappear. That's why, you know, Duryodhana can say whatever he says, but eventually the truth shall be known when there come some moments. Metaphysicians consider that the story of Mahabharata is a passing from Dreta Yuga to Dvapara Yuga, the change of two Yugas in the history of the earth. And then you can say, but uh, you know, Duryodhana appeared as if he was okay. Well, after the Mahabharata was written, and after Krishna did his existential dance, then Duryodhana was exposed as being a selfish king, an impure king, an improper ruler. Therefore, there come moments. Of course, here Jesus refers ultimately to the ultimate moment of truth, which is the end of each yuga, like the end of Kali Yuga, which might be close at hand. When Kali Yuga ends, then all the bullshit is destroyed. Then suddenly the shit hits the fan and the truth will be known. If people may think that I don't know who, uh, my guru called Babaji is okay, he's a great man, and if Jesus comes by and does not take that Babaji to the kingdom of heaven and tells him to go to hell, then suddenly the bullshit is over. Suddenly the truth has been revealed. Suddenly the hypocrisy, you know, whatever image that Babaji has created for himself, that image falls into pieces because it doesn't work with God. It doesn't work in the presence of Jesus. Exactly as Jesus 2,000 years ago, he came and he called out the shit of everybody to their face without any compromise. Exactly in the same way, there are moments in history when the light is shining directly. And Jesus says it doesn't matter when it will happen, but it will happen. 
what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight because everything is recorded in Akasha Tadva. And what you have whispered in the ear, in the inner rooms, like secrets, hush hush, will be proclaimed from the roofs. And this is both the secret knowledge which these people were keeping, the keys to knowledge, but it is also the conspiracy. The conspiracy that there are people who pretend to be spiritual and all the time they do politics, money, power, conspiracy. And when you ask them, suddenly they are holier than thou and they are very decent citizens, but actually it's all bullshit. It's all a lie. And thus, uh, Jesus simply assures the whole planet that it's just a matter of time and it doesn't matter if this happens during your lifetime or after your lifetime, soon or in 2,000 years from now, nevertheless, the truth shall be known. So he simply says, don't sympathize at all with all this hypocrisy. He says, I tell you, my friends, he calls the disciples, he calls them friends. It's very great because friendship in the antiquity, coming from the Greek culture and not only, friendship was considered the supreme value. Friendship was considered to be the higher manifestation of love because it did not need to involve infatuation and sex. Therefore, when Jesus describes love, you remember, he says, what love is there greater than when a man puts his life for another friend, for one of his friends, or for some of his friends, and he gives it away. Jesus says, if you sacrifice your love, your life for your friends, this is the supreme demonstration of love. This is the supreme manifestation of love. Therefore, he considers friendship supreme. Not the love between a man and a woman. Although, archetypally, we can say that the love between Shiva and Shakti, the love between an enlightened Buddha, male and female, is, of course, like the perfect friendship described by the Greek philosophers and implied by Jesus in many of his words. So he addresses his own disciples as his friends. That's why many gurus have preferred to consider themselves the friends of the people. There are, I know many gurus who abhor the word master, because master is like master-slave. It means somebody who is entitled to command. But there are also spiritual traditions in which the guru is called a spiritual friend. He is a friend of great spirituality, who has been where you haven't been yet, and who can show you the way and clear your path through the labyrinth. And thus, uh, Jesus calls his own disciples friends in the end. No? Do you have friends? Have you ever been about to give your life for one of your friends? What have you given for your friends, your time, your energy, your peace of mind, 
your money, your sexual satisfaction, you're like, how much have you sacrificed in the name of friendship? And how many times? And for how long time? And then think in spirituality. In spirituality, your guru, your brothers and sisters, are they your friends? Do you treat them like your friends? Jesus, who has this kind of heart and consciousness, Jesus is a real friend. He did the act of supreme friendship. He took Peter and John and turned them into candidates for Shambhala. He turned them into great saints of humanity. No friend can do a greater thing for their friend than that. So he says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Like Jesus knows one sad fact that especially in Kali Yuga, many prophets and saints got persecuted and killed. If you look at the spiritual history of the last 2,000, 3,000 years, you find a lot of miserable examples, a lot of ugly, horrendous examples, which make you question what kind of world we are living in. And Jesus is very realistic about this. He says, when spiritual masters live among the pygmies of Kali Yuga, then there will be a lot of striking back, a lot of dirt, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of persecution. And he simply says, if you don't go with the Pharisees, you will be like me, you will be against the system. No, like, try to think, what's the system doing today? Take the coronavirus hype and hysteria, right? How many people are like Robin Hood in this one? How many people are going against the system? Not in a stupid, anarchistic way, but relying on things which are intelligent, spiritual, common sense. And that's why Jesus knows when you go against the hypocrisy of the powers that be, then there is even risk of death. And Jesus says clearly, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after, they can do no more. They can kill your body, but your soul will go to Shambhala. Your soul go to Brahma Loka. Your soul will go to the kingdom of heaven. Then what is there to fear? Of course, I'm not saying it's pleasant, but still, in the big picture, what is there to fear? If you truly stand for your spiritual sense. So Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who may harm your body, but they don't harm your soul because your soul belongs to God.
and you gave it to God. Therefore, people say, but Swamiji, always it has to happen that way? Not always. Not always. Because sometimes people have passed that test in previous lives and therefore they will not need to prove their surrender and their fearlessness in this way. There are people who already in a previous life they were asked to risk their lives for God, to risk their freedom, to risk their reputation, to risk their liveliness, to, to risk their daily food or something, and they did it. And then from the standpoint of the divine consciousness, they have a check in that box. In that box they passed that exam. And then now, when they do spirituality, they are not tried about that. But others who have not been tried, it's exactly like you did not pass a key exam in your university. The university administration says you shall not graduate before you pass that exam. And thus, sometimes, for some people, especially in a bitter time like Kali Yuga, there comes this thing of persecution and of difficulties, and it can harm your body one way or the other. But Jesus says, if your spirit is in the right place, then don't be afraid of that, because the fact that some people can hurt you physically, it doesn't mean that they will affect you spiritually as well. And But he says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. This is the real bar. If you have suffered something physically and then you die and then you go to Shambhala or some other divine place, Hiranya Loka, if you want to follow Yogananda's lead, then where is the problem? You finished your life on earth, you have reached liberation from the physical world, and now you have gone into an almost divine reality from where you can only come closer and closer to the absolute consciousness of this universe. Everything is bliss. Everything is a huge spiritual victory. But what to do if you take care of your body and you live a hundred years being a total hypochondriac and ridiculous? Like nowadays people think that uh, they can never have viruses and flus and things like this and they, therefore they might live forever which is a totally hilarious, absurd thing, and everybody knows it. And then, when you die, then your soul goes to hell. Or if you don't want to make it black and white, your soul goes in one of the many unfortunate and unhappy places where the soul can go after death. 
and your life lasted for 80 years and the afterlife may last 300 or 400 years. Not to mention that if you have a very particularly bad karma, your time of interaction with pain and suffering can become much longer than that. Much longer than that. And then how much will that matter? Well, it will matter a lot. And Jesus says ignorant people care very much about what's happening to them physically and they don't care about what's happening with them spiritually. Because what happens after death is way, way, way more important than how happy you have been physically in your physical body. That's exactly the nature of Maya. That's exactly the nature of illusion. To think that if you make things cozy and comfortable and painless for you physically, then you have solved the problem of life and of the universe. What a lie, what a deceit, what an illusion. I don't have anything against the fact that people should be healthy, that people should not have physical problems. Yoga is precisely a method which purports to help people to live a life comfortable and good, even from a physical standpoint. But Jesus here puts them under conflict. He says when you have to choose between them, if ever you have to choose between them, then you should never take the easy way out. You should never choose the beaten path, which means get blinded by illusion and choose the physical illusion, the physical comfort. Jesus says, following me, Jesus, you might incur troubles. Following me, Jesus, the Pharisees and the scholars, the scribes, they will be angry at you as they are angry at me. Following the path of spirituality, especially in Kali Yuga, you might incur a lot of problems, but you should not be afraid. You have those problems simply because those are tests which you have not passed in your own personal history. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be subjected to the same test again and again, and again. Once you passed it, you passed it. Consciousness, the cosmic consciousness, never forgets anything. In the consciousness of the, of the divine, everything is crystal clear. That's why he says, be afraid of damaging your soul. 500 years ago, people would not have committed religious offenses by which they could defile their soul. Like, for example, to take an oath with your hand on the Bible and to lie. They didn't need lie detectors in those days. The Bible was a lie detector because 99% of the people would not lie. 
And those who did, they were the new Pharisees and the new scribes. They were the new hypocrites. Because the hypocrites did not dis disappear from the world when the Western world became Christian. No, the hypocrites sneak always. They survive. There were also hypocrites, many among the Christians. And this is how you did recognize them, that they cared more about their body and physical comfort, about their food, about their money, about this and that. They cared more than about the purity of the doctrine, about the purity of the teaching, about the truth. The truth has to be said even if it's not popular. There are a lot of unpopular truths today and you know that I myself have often said many of them. Sometimes I may not be insisting and repeating obsessively some of them simply because I said them once, once I said them two times, I said them three times, and that's more than enough. Those who have ears to hear, they shall hear, and those who don't want to hear, they don't want to hear anyway what I have to say, because I am quoting the tradition. There were people who posted a recording of some lecture which I gave in the Vira groups, and they maligned me because of that. I had an expert in spirituality listen to it, and he said, you haven't said anything wrong in this lecture. It's all of it quotes from the great masters and from the great traditions of mankind. How can that be wrong? But that lecture was saying some unpopular truth in terms of gender, in terms of gender policies and stuff like that. And I had to take a lot of heat and I'm still taking it simply because some people could not like to listen to the truth because they want the truth to be what they wanted to be. But the truth is not what people wanted to be. You can claim that the coronavirus is the biggest problem of humanity that has ever been. In 10 years, everybody will laugh rolling on the floor from the stupidity which such people have said. No. So therefore, um, the truth shall be known. And Jesus simply says, don't be afraid of those who harm the body. Be afraid of those who harm your soul and they can throw you into hell. You listen to some Hypocrite, you listen to some fake guru who tells you to spin some pyramids in your aura or whatever bizarre methods they would teach as revealed from heaven. And in the end of the day, when you die, you discover that you go in some wilderness. And then you are disappointed and you say, I thought I was practicing spirituality. And then your soul has been damaged. You discover that you've wasted a lifetime of faith and effort. You discover that uh, your soul 
has been cheated, not forever, but you will have to wait for another 500 years or 1,000 years before you get a new chance to do the spiritual work. So Jesus is very clear here and he says, yes, I tell you, fear such a person who can confuse your spirit. And then he gives uh, one of his famous metaphors. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Apparently in those times people were selling, catching sparrows and selling them, I suppose for the purpose of eating them, or for some other purposes, I don't know, maybe holding them captive in the cage. And they were sold at the price of five sparrows costed two pennies, whatever the currency of the day was. Yet, not one of them is forgotten by God. Even the sparrows which come five for two pennies, not even a single sparrow is forgotten by God. Not an atom in this universe moves without the silent participation of the cosmic consciousness. God is omnipresent and omniscient. Therefore, there is nothing to fear. Je Jesus is saying it very clearly. He says, even if the sparrows seem to have no value in the human culture, not one of them is forgotten by God. And he says to his disciples, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Jesus tells to Peter, Peter, every hair on your head is accounted by your guardian angel, by God. And therefore, like, why would you be afraid? The world makes sense. This is the opposite of the chaos. It's what the Greek philosophers call cosmos. Cosmos is an orderly universe, which is hierarchical like a pyramid. While the chaos is exactly the opposite. The chaos is a universe where there is no order, no evolution, no spiritual rule, no meaning, no alpha and no omega, and everything is the outer darkness, the outer chaos. Therefore, Jesus is telling them, you think that life is random, but it isn't. He says, not even a sparrow is forgotten by God. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. That, of course, shows very clearly. In the Buddhist legends, there was an eagle that was hungry, and Buddha generously cut a piece of his leg and gave it to him to eat. That's very good to show compassion and the universal love for all the creatures, but it's not a metaphor to be taken literally. Literally, killing the bird is more than killing the fish, but it's less than killing a mammal. Killing a mammal is more than killing, more karma than killing a bird, but less karma than killing a human being. 
like the human beings have a very high value because they are very high on the scale of evolution. Every human being is potentially a Buddha because each one of them can take the decision which make him or her into a Buddha. And because of that, if God remembers every sparrow, then of course God remembers every soul, every human being. So Jesus is encouraging people. He says, it can be that things are becoming so chaotic, so senseless, but they never are. The universe makes sense. It's very important to remember this view. And then he is coming from this dialogue where he gave the woes to the Pharisees and scholars, and then he tells them, Don't listen to their bullshit, it will ruin your soul, you will go to hell, there will be plenty of suffering because of that. Listen to what I tell you because that is the actual bread of life, the East, the correct East, that is the way, and then he turns it to him, because ultimately with Jesus, it was all about him, because he was the Alpha and the Omega. It was about acknowledging him or not. He says, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before man, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. Like, you die and you go to the customs of the air, as they are called, to the atmospheric customs, and there the angels are passing customs on you. Like, are you capable, are you worthy to go further up, or you should stay down here? What have you got to say for yourself? And then you say, I have loved Jesus all my life. And then the angels look up into the cosmic consciousness and they say, Jesus, is it true? Can you confirm? Then comes the moment of truth. Many people have had this moment of truth when they die. Millions and billions of souls have had this moment of truth in their own personal individual judgment day, and many will still have it. That's the problem. The problem is not that you die when you are 75 or when you are 76. The problem is, if when you die, God gives you a nod. If God gives you a nod, then you are acknowledged, you are real, you are saved, you are authentic, you have not been a hypocrite. And Jesus says, everybody who acknowledges me, I will also acknowledge him before the angels. Believe me, I don't know if you have ever meditated with angels, 
I don't know if you have ever felt the presence of angels in a clear, distant way, not some phantasmagoric emotional experience. The real thing, believe me, when you would be in front of the fundamental angels, you would want Jesus to acknowledge you. To be acknowledged by Jesus before the angels of God is the treasure of 10,000 lifetimes. People can by what if Krishna acknowledges me? It's the same. It's the same. Don't turn it. There is no competition in the spiritual world. Jesus is a very major avatara, one of the last major avataras who came to deliver the presence of God to humanity. There have been others. There have been super great masters, Allah, Abhinavagupta and Shankaracharya and Milarepa and the likes of them. And you are going to say, what if those masters acknowledge me? That's perfectly okay. But realize that they acknowledge you only in harmony with God. So it's not about Jesus, 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 Jesus only. Jesus here speaks as a matter of principle. Because maybe you have grown up in India and you never, in the 15th century or in the 5th century, and you never heard about Jesus. And then when you die, somebody will acknowledge you and say, no, 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 this one comes up here because this one is one of us. Maybe the king of the world from Shambhala pushes a finger for you and says, not that one, that one comes to me, to Shambhala. No? Therefore, somebody has to acknowledge you and that acknowledgement is not a competition among egoistic, selfish, ignorant different individuals. That acknowledgement is a total unison from the God consciousness all the way down to your presence, to your person. And thus, and he turns it the other way around, so Jesus then, so that there is no misunderstanding and he says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Like Jesus says, if you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. If you speak against me, I will forgive you, but I will not acknowledge you. That's because that's a positive act. I will be neutral. Of course, Jesus being neutral to you is not at all the best thing which could happen to you. So, it's not, don't take it simplistically, but at least you are not going against it. And Jesus has such a great consciousness, the Christ-like consciousness, he says, those who will speak a word against this, me, the Son of Man, will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He reminds here 
a fundamental teaching. He says, with God, things are never simple. Now you see me, who I am a personification, a manifestation, a materialization of the Son of God. I am the Son of God. I and God are one and the same. But there is an aspect of God which is called the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, as it is called in the theological Christian terms. And this Holy Ghost, we know in the Tantric tradition that it is equivalent to the feminine part, to the mother aspect of the divine, to the Shaktis. And Jesus says, if you speak against the Shiva aspect, the masculine aspect, you might get away with it. Like the worst thing which can happen and will happen, and believe me, it's super bad already, is that the consciousness aspect will stand apart, will be neutral to you. Like I have got nothing to say, neither yes nor no. Let this soul redeem itself through its own efforts and value. Then you find out the truth which was lamented by so many Jewish mystics, Christian saints, and Islamic holy men, that nobody is without sin in the eyes of God. Then when you try to do it in a Luciferic, Prometheic way, me, me, I don't need Jesus to give me the green, I can save myself. You are going to fail miserably, miserably, because you cannot, there is no man that is without sin in the eyes of God. So even when Milarepa reaches there, he is very happy when Jesus says, this one is one of my beloved. No, it's very important to rely on the divine grace. The divine grace is very important. And Jesus is warning the world and his disciples that in God there are certain aspects of divinity, such as the feminine aspect of God, which react exactly like the laws of nature. That means they will not spare you. If you jump from a high mountain, you will fall and crash. There is no other way around that. It's the laws of nature. So here, Jesus is resuming the teaching which he gave in other circumstances, where he said, people are doing lots of blasphemies because they don't care, they are spiritually negligent. And he just came among the woes to a lot of people who did serious spiritual mistakes. But at the same time, Jesus is saying, don't take it like everything goes for free. Because he says, with me, if you don't like me, I shall stay away from you. 
But with the part of God which is called the Holy Spirit, if you trod it, it will strike back and there will be no way out of that. He says, anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Because in God, we have both aspects. All the dualities. The dual, the part which forgives you and the part which does not. So, therefore, it's a very important lesson to learn. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the very essence of Karma Yoga. Jesus describes Karma Yoga from a Christian standpoint. It's exactly like I would tell you if you did a consecration, don't worry about how you are going to do things. Whatever you do shall be under a state of inspiration. That's valid for yoga teachers when they teach yoga, when they do conferences. That's valid for spiritual people when they do acts of charity, acts of compassion. Whatever they do, this is the very essence of karma yoga. That when you are with God, then God is with you and you are somehow helped, inspired, guided. So Jesus predicts very clearly that some of his disciples are going to be brought before the Jewish authorities. After he dies, the so-called Christians, which were Jews converted to Jesus' teachings, the so-called Christians would be judged, condemned, blamed, considered to be idiots, blasphemers, bad people. They would be persecuted in various ways. And Jesus knew, because he said, if I die, then the persecution will move from me to you, because you, keep, you will keep on saying and doing what I said and done. And thus, Jesus is telling you all this. He says, don't be so much afraid of the physical things. Don't defile your soul. Don't lose your soul. Be with me and I shall be with you. Do not go against the Holy Spirit because that is a major, major, the biggest mistake one can do. And he says, therefore, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. Like, I'm going to make a smart discourse. It is not. It's like uh, Francis of Assisi, who had prepared a smart theological discourse to tell to the Pope, and then suddenly when he was in front of the Pope, he just said two, three words. He stammered. He went into an awkward silence. And when finally he started speaking, he started speaking from God.
he started speaking from his soul and the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. And fortunately, somehow, the Pope of that day was not so corrupt and so egocentric so that he could not feel something. And the Pope not only acknowledged Francis of Assisi, but actually he came and kissed his feet. Why? Because when Francis was speaking, the Holy Spirit was teaching him what to say. It's just a spontaneous thing. We all in yoga, when we try to teach you the truths of this universe, we find no greater teacher than the Holy Spirit. The mother of the universe, Ruach, the breath of the youth of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, Shakti, Mahadevi, is the one teaching us, is the one, is the prana which flows through us and inspires us. My discourse can always, when I do free discourses like this, my discourse can go in a hundred places. And I always let it flow where it has to go because it always flows from a consecration, from a state of inspiration and of presence. I do not have to defend myself against you in this situation, but I'm just speaking freely about some of the things which I understand when I read these words from the Bible from the Gospel of Luke. And therefore, always remember that the truth is coming from God. God is the truth. And the only way to manifest this truth is to let God flow through. Jesus calls upon the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's the active part of God. It's Shakti, it's the mother principle of the universe which flows through you. That is a very important thing to be learned here because Jesus relates this faith, this trust in the truth, this living your life right. He relates it with your relationship for the Holy Spirit. He says, if you let the Holy Spirit act, he will do what he is doing to him, to Jesus. He will make you tell the truth, proclaim the truth, fearlessly go into what you have to do for this humanity. This is a very important lesson which can make people understand no? like what is the truth about I don't know today everybody wants to go into the truth about the coronavirus what is the truth about the Jesus what is the truth about life after death what is the truth about the major issues of the universe and of life that's where you should let the Holy Spirit inspire you and you should have the courage to live your life according to those 
principles. Do your spiritual practice. Believe in the great teachings given by Krishna, by Jesus, by Lord Rama, by the prophets of this history, by the great yogis and saints, and live courageously, live with God, making your life be a karma yoga in which you are permanently inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. With this, let us conclude for today. Thank you all for listening to this presentation, these explanations. We are very curious for your feedback because this is the first experiment what we do to transmit the satsang live. And uh, if we will manage to master this technology properly, then there will be more because exception made of the people who are physically here, there are many others who want to periodically be connected and listen to some of these fundamental truths. Blessings to all of you on the Mashivaya. With this we have finished for tonight.